Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Ross Kemp. Over the last 18 years, I've made some 90-odd documentaries predominantly in hostile environments, from Afghanistan to Syria, from El Salvador to the Congo. And it's fair to say that during that time, I found myself in a few interesting situations. I've been shot at, tear gassed, had knives pulled on me and spears thrown at me. But in all those years, what's impressed me the most is the resilience of the human spirit. Our ability, no matter where we're from, to overcome and make it through to the other side. So, in my new series, The Kempcast, I'll be talking to some incredible individuals who all have engaging stories to tell and have themselves overcome some extremely tough moments in their lives. Right now, we're living in unprecedented times. And we should be doing all we can together to get through this as safely as possible. I hope that if you subscribe to the Campcast and hear how my guests overcame their toughest moments, it may help you overcome yours, whether you're going through one right now or you're faced with one in the future. Joining me today is Dr. Maggie Adderin Pocock, MBE. She's a British space scientist and the presenter of BBC's The Sky at Night. She's been faced with many challenges in her life, not least racism and sexism and her own personal battle with dyslexia. Not only did we talk about the future of space travel, the clangers and Star Trek, we also spoke about how she's become an inspiration to so many. Maggie, what a pleasure. Absolutely. Um, absolute pleasure. I wanted to speak to you for for years um yeah well you know um i have to say i'm not going to mention your age but uh, i am i am older than you but, we, but only we by a little bit only by a little bit and we would have probably watched the same sort of things on tv growing up but uh, i think we should start off first of all when i was a kid um i got a present i think my brother and i both got one uh we were about seven and five respectively and they were NASA space outfits. Now, of course, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have been very good in real space, <laughs> but they are pretty good. Yes. Um, so for us, that was it. I was definitely going to be an astronaut for at least six months of my young life. Now, I read one thing, and I want you to clear this up for me because it is annoying me. It has annoyed me ever since I, I read it because I had no way of really backing it up. Okay. It was, if all the stars, this is not planets, if all the stars that we know about were the size of a tennis ball, and they were placed in the Albert Hall, they would fill it up. Is that? Yeah. I, I think, well, just to put that in perspective, um, our local star is the sun. 
and all the other stars we see are similar to the sun. Some are bigger, some are smaller, but they're all stars as well. Now, we know planet Earth. If you took planet Earth and you took many planet Earths and squished them into the sun, you would fit about 1.3 million Earths into one sun. So just take the scale of the sun. Oh, you know the Hubble Space Telescope? Yeah. Just 30 years ago, actually, we celebrated its birthday recently. And one of the things it did is it took a picture of a piece of space we thought was empty. And it looked at this piece of space for 10 days. And then when we processed the data, what we found is that space wasn't empty. There were actually sort of points of light. And we analysed those points of light and we realised each one of them was a galaxy. Our galaxy is the Milky Way. Yeah. And our galaxy contains 300 billion stars. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> 300 billion stars. So what it found is in our galaxy, 300 billion stars. Hubble estimated that in the whole of the universe, there are 100 billion galaxies. I just love the numbers. It blows my mind. 100 billion galaxies each. Give or take. <laughs> With how many billions of stars in each? Yeah. And so, yeah, ours is an average galaxy which contains 300 billion stars. So, yeah, there are billions upon billions. And so I think the Albert Hall might be, even if they're just the size of a tennis ball, I think we'd be pushing the Albert Hall, actually. Really? So we could be, Wem we could be Wembley. We could be Wembley. <laughs> yeah, why not? Go for Wembley. Madison, I don't know. Big, a very big venue. But the point being, you've, you've said that, you know, when you look at just the vastness of space, the amount of galaxies, the amount of stars, there has to be other life forms out there, whatever they may be. Yeah, and I think, yeah, most space scientists would agree with that because it's almost slightly conceited that we think, you know, we're on, as you say, this small book of, um, lump of rock going around an average star out of 300 billion stars in our galaxy, out of 100 billion galaxies, and we think we're the only life out there. Uh, but, uh, but what I find really exciting is a whole branch of science called uh, astrobiology. And it's trying to look at one of the exciting things at the moment is we're looking, we've been looking for life in our solar system. So, you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth, you know, Earth, we know there's life. And then we go to Mars, sort of Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Uranus and Neptune. We've been looking for life out there. We haven't found anything. Now looking at the, some of the moons uh, going around these planets, like Saturn has got some really good potential places where there could be life. But now we're not only looking within our solar system around our sun, we're looking at what we call exoplanets, planets going around other stars. And we're able to detect these now. And so, so far we found about you know, 2,000, 2,500 of these, but we're verifying more and more of them all the time. And some of them have sort of liquid water in their atmosphere or water vapor in their atmospheres. So we're getting quite excited that, you know, even if we can't find life in our solar system, maybe we can look beyond. And then we can start looking at sort of what sort of life could live on these planets because we can start looking at their atmospheres and working out what sort of life could potentially be there. And it blows my mind. It, just, it is Star Trek. <laughs> but it is Star, Star Trek, uh, as, as, as I now know, is one of your favourite programmes, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, we're going to come to that as well in a bit. I just want to go back to the idea that if there was uh, life, yeah. it wouldn't necessarily resemble us, would it? Um, yeah, because we... The only example of, we have of life is life that we find on this planet. And so, and life we find on this planet needs sort of a few sort of key things, like sort of water, it needs a heat source. But even looking at life on our planet, sometimes we find life in places we just don't expect it. The fact we're finding life in places we didn't expect life to exist broadens our understanding of where life as we know it can exist. But what I really find exciting is, um, in terms of things like astrobiology, people, um, um, all life on Earth so far we've discovered has been carbon-based. So our DNA is sort of you know, blocks of carbon sort of wound together. 
But um, in, if you look at the periodic table, you know, the, the list of all, all the elements in, in the, yes. But um, there is, um, the next one down is sort of silicon. And silicon could be the basis of, of a different type of life. And so with astrobiology, you can sort of you know, move around and look at sort of the different, different chemical combinations and see if they could sort of form life or uh, any sort of shape or size or form. And it, it, I find it very exciting. I do tell, I'm going to name drop. I sat next to um, David Attenborough once and we were having this discussion and he was saying, no, you need water for life. And I said, no, 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 but that's life as we know it. Because I truly believe uh, that uh, and maybe even on some of the planets we've visited with our probes, there might be life there, but we just don't recognise it. Because we're not looking for that particular kind of life. We're looking for a carbon form, right? Yes. And we're looking for life as we know it. And also... Um, because the life could be sort of, I love the idea of sort of landing on Mars and you know, the little rocks we see, they're actually alive, but we just don't realise it. But another question is, what is life? Um, because the definition of life is, you think it'd be sort of you know, pretty well down, uh, nailed down by now, but we don't really know. What do you think about the, the, um, the, the SpaceX project? It's funny because um, I was um, speaking recently about sort of the SpaceX launch to the International Space Station and sort of uh, people getting very excited about that. But the thing that excites me is that it is commercial because just like you, I've always wanted to get out there. It's been the driving force in my life, so much so. The only thing that sort of uh, mitigated that a little bit was the birth of my daughter because I have to wait till she grows up so we can go out together. But it's been, it's been the thing that's driven me in my life. But if we just rely on governments, we're not going to get out there anytime soon. I think only, I think it's 560 people out of all the people who have ever lived have gone into space. So that is sort of a, it's just sort of a slow progress. But um, immediately commercialization comes in. And look at mobile phones or flights, you know, um, when the Wright brothers, you know, um, did their first flight, no one expected EasyJet. And so no, now, absolutely not right. right now. <laughs> but see, so commercialization sort of brings the price down with computers, with mobile phones. But at the same time, I think there's an ethical dimension that we need to be careful with commercialization. So the, the space traveler in me is really pleased that commercialization is happening. Um, but I'm still slightly scared because commercialization, they're driven by other, uh, other requirements. Okay, another question for you. We've talked about just how many galaxies that we know of. Yeah, uh, approximately 100 billion, maybe 200 billion, but yeah. <laughs> and as we know, space is still traveling, it's still expanding, it expanding grows. Outwards. Yes. Bang outwards. Now, I've been told that was from something called the Big Bang. Yes. How many billions of years did that happen? So about 14, 14 and a half, around that. 14 and a half billion years ago, there was a Big Bang. And, yes. and that is what is presently moving. Even those things, the Hubble, just those galaxies the Hubble has just found, they're all from the Big Bang. Yes. What was there before there was a Big Bang? <laughs> That's killing me. That's been killing me for a long time. <laughs> See, a few years ago, I've been giving you the glib answer, and I would say, I'd say that you know, um, uh, the Big Bang created space and time and everything we know. So how can you talk about what came before time? So, uh, so th that would be the answer. But now we're looking at all sorts of amazing stuff, uh, like sort of the multiverse. And we, we feel that perhaps this isn't the only sort of universe. There might be other universes. And so perhaps we expanded out of a, a previous universe. The problem is we don't know. We can sort of, a, a, we talk about the Big Bang because um, as all those 100 billion galaxies that I mentioned, um, we can see them um, by actually analysing their light. We're, they're moving away from us. And so there's something called redshift and blue shift, where um, if something's coming towards you, uh, it's sort of a, it, the light gets bluer. And if something's moving away from you, the light gets red. I hold it that right? Yes. And so um, most things seem to be redshifted because they're moving away from us. And so they're expanding outwards. And that's how we believe the Big Bang, we, we know that the Big Bang happened. And so uh, with everything going outwards... What's it going out into? 
so, so that sort of is your original question you know what came before or what was the big bang in so uh, in science fiction it's lovely because people play with these ideas like um, our universe is you know a marble in someone's game that they're playing in a much bigger universe your your galaxy is just on the end of someone's finger now yeah yes. but that's not the case is it but what was there do we have any know. idea no we see we don't and so uh, we, so uh, because we can see back in time we can see everything expanding so if we go backwards in time so we can see it's not collapsing together it's hard to go before the collapse because of the way that you know and let's be fair you made your own telescope when you were very young which i think is just incredible you how long did it take the polish the glass to make a telescope so yeah um, so yeah grind and polish the mirror and it was months because i used to watch star trek and sort of grind my mirror in, in front of this and star trek <laughs> Who's your favourite character? Oh, uh, actually, uh, it's Lieutenant Yohura. Um, the thing is, that for a long time, it was Spock because I liked his sort of cold logic. And as a child, I, I, would, I wanted to be sort of more, uh, less emotional and more logical. But Lieutenant Yohura, and I met her a few years ago. Oh, what's she, she like? Oh, she's just so, so lovely. Very like, good looking woman, I remember. I, I know, she... even now. I mean, because I mean, we were celebrating 50 years of Star Trek and I was on a panel. And I must admit, I like to think of myself as a professional, but it was just sort of, ah, you're <laughs> And um, so she was just wonderful. She always sat like at one of those, those kind of like laptop type desks before there <laughs> yes. were laptops, pushing buttons and lights that were blinking. While Captain Kirk sat with his swingy chair, looking <laughs> around at her, yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's be fair; she was she was a, a black lady, right? Yeah. And, and at that time, on national television, there weren't that many black people on TV, were there? Not many at all. There probably still are. There probably still are too few actually on screen and working behind screen. To be honest with you. Oh, yes. Worked, well, having um, worked in the genre for a number of years. Yes, and, and so yeah, how many camera women are there? How many women directors? It is still. We still have a dichotomy, and, and yes, uh, and sort of in terms of sort of uh, black faces you know, in front of and behind the screen. Uh, but it's quite interesting because it, it, if you are in this in that position, it's sort of you feel a bit of a responsibility. I think it's uh, quite interesting. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we are in in very interesting times in terms of that, and I don't have to point that out to you. I know that you've done a lot of work in terms of of getting the message out there, particularly to to young, bane kids that you know. To be a success in, in your lives, you don't have to just follow the path of, of, of so many into sport yes. uh, or, or into maybe acting and stuff like that. You can you can become a scientist like you, right? Yes, uh, I think it's. I, I, I always tell kids um, to reach for the stars, and I tell them that my stars happen to be stars, but their stars could be anything, anything they love, because I think it's so important to work in something you're passionate about. Because we spend so much time at work, why not do something you love? Totally agree. Yeah, and, and, so, and I guess, you, well, it shows that you love your work and, and what you do and getting out there and making the documentaries too. And I think that that, that comes across. So, but I, I think the problem is um, people are given almost stereotypes. You know, you're black, you're female. When I was at school, I said, yeah, I want to go into science. Yeah. Oh, you're black, you're female. You should go into nursing. But, but, but no, seriously, they said, you're black, uh, you, you, you're bright and you're interested in science. You should be a nurse. <laughs> Oh, there was no bright there. <laughs> there was a sort of eureka moment for you, wasn't there, when you were at school? Can you talk me through that? Yeah, uh, because um, at home, my father was talking to about, so my parents split up. I was living with my dad uh, with, and my three other sisters. And my father was saying, you know, education is so important. Um, when I was, I don't know, three or four years old, my father was saying, OK, what Oxford, you, what Oxford college are you going to go to when you grow up? So um, education was sort of, OK, I have to get educated. 
So I went to school. I thought, yeah, okay, this is it. You know, this is where you get educated. And because of the dyslexia, they just thought I was dumb. And so they left me at the back of the class. <laughs> and, you know, they had the safety scissors and the glue and, you know, just you know, keep her occupied. So I remember um, I was uh, at the back of the class and it was a science class. And I paid a bit more attention to science because science is what you know, got people into space. And the teacher asked a question. And the question is, um, if one litre of water weighs one kilogram, then what does one cubic centimetre of water weigh? Now, being dyslexic, um, uh, dyslexics are usually quite logical. And I worked out that one cubic centimetre of water is a thousandth of a litre. And so, uh, and a thousandth of a kilogram is one gram. So therefore, one cubic centimetre of water should weigh one gram. It's what, well, it's what did the calculation. And uh, I remember sitting in the class and thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, I think I might have this. And so I put my hand up. And then I sort of looked around the classroom and no one else had their hand up. So I put my hand down. Uh, but the teacher sort of looked at me, oh, Maggie, yeah, she's got her hand up. Oh. She gave me an encouraging nod. So I go, Miss, is it, is it one gram? I said, that's right. And at that moment, it really was, oh, you know, yeah. started singing. It was all, my goodness, because uh, it was not only that I got it right, but no one else in the class had done that calculation. And so I think that, that there's a great program that used to be on called Faking It. And it was just sort of about people doing extraordinary things by putting put in strange situations. And mm -hmm. I think it's about confidence. And that sort of just gave me the confidence. If I can do that, what else can I do? And of course, this was science. So if I could do science, then you know, some of my crazy dreams might just get a bit closer. So, so at this point, so how old were you when you worked out the weight of a cubic centimetre? Was it, was it water again or was it air? A, a water, yeah, cubic, one cubic centimetre. Yeah, so I was um, sort of, um, about eight, sort of eight, nine, that sort of age. So, so, so young, youngish, young, young, young enough to realise that despite your, despite your dyslexia, there was definitely a future for you in this environment. Yeah. And was that really? But also, you, you went to 12 different schools, didn't you, Meg? Yeah, How did 13. <laughs> 13? Some of them, I must have been like, hi, bye. I just started passing through. What, sorry, can I ask a question for that? Why so many schools? <laughs> I gave a talk at um, a, a, a school the other day, and a kid said, How did you get thrown out of so many schools? I said, No, no, it wasn't like that. I didn't get thrown out. <laughs> And because, um, but it was partly that um, my parents split up. So sometimes I was with my mom, sometimes I, I was with my dad. Some schools mysteriously closed down. I don't know. I didn't touch them. I don't know what happened. But um, but because I think I was moving around uh, and then sort of a uh, yes. So I, I just wrapped them up. How, with all that disruption, with the dyslexia, do you end up being the person you are, the scientist that you are? To me, uh, um, it's what I call uh, the crazy dream. All my life, I, so 1969, they went to the moon. I was inspired by that. I used to look at books. Uh, I didn't read them much because I was dyslexic, but I'd look at books with pictures of astronauts. I thought, that's what I want to do. And I think because of that, there was a sort of an internal drive. And uh, I, think that's, I think people are lucky if they have a crazy dream like that, almost, almost an unfill, uh, unfulfillable dream, because it drives you on and it makes you strive. And you're, uh, that's it. Um, Life is always throwing hurdles and you've got to you know, duck and dive and overcome them. But when you've got your know, eye focused on that sort of that point in the distance, that golden shimmering thing, you learn more ways. And I think as a dyslexic, that's one of the things you learn. You learn how to sort of accommodate and sort of work around and find the best way that works for you. And it might not be the standard way, but it might be a, work, a way that works for, for you as an individual. So I think that's it. <laughs> how much of an effect, obviously it does have an effect, but how heartbreaking was it possibly for for you when you found out your mum and dad was splitting up? Can you remember it? 
yeah well see my parents actually split up when i was about four years old <laughs> and um uh, do you I remember think, that can you remember that four i do but vaguely <laughs> so the, the, the details i remember <laughs> are the silly things that a four-year-old will remember because so i remember my mum was moving to a sweet shop i thought sweet shop yeah <laughs> And so that's what I latched on to. Uh, but I think um, and it, it's quite interesting because if you look at me and my sisters, most, um, uh, I think I was almost in the sweet spot. Uh, it's either that or just I go through life with rose tinted spectacles because my two older sisters were much more aware of what was happening. Right. To me, I was, you know, uh, when you're four, you, you hear sweet shop, you know, your parents, you, you don't really cotton on to what was happening that it, it came home later because um there was an ongoing custody battle which went on for many years so uh, I, I was more aware later but at that time and then my younger sister was very young she was only about a year and a half and so um gosh uh, uh, yes and, and so i think that was quite rough on her but for me i was sort of you know <laughs> i was a four-year-old gadding around thinking about sweets <laughs> yeah but did you move between the two parents yes many times which is why i clocked up quite a few schools as well uh, and um, uh, so sometimes uh, in those days, um, uh, when you got to a certain age, the, the court would invite you in and sit down and have a chat with you and say, so, so which girl do you want to stay in? And that was some of the hardest times of my life because you had to effectively disown a parent. And that's a horrible thing to do to someone. So, Maggie, I, I have to ask you, um, you know, you have had a very interesting life so far. But this this program is about people overcoming tough moments. Can you tell me what do you, what would you what what would you say was the toughest moment that you you've overcome in your life so far? I think there's been oh huh, there's been many things uh, that have happened along the way. Uh, exam results which weren't what I wanted and uh, stopped me from perhaps doing something I uh, I dreamed of, and uh, parents splitting up. Uh, and uh, I was saying at first it, you didn't feel the impact, but as I grew up choosing between parents was uh, it's sort of things that wears at your soul you worry about them they they go over and over in your mind to have i done the right thing how, 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 who have i hurt by doing making a decision um things things that are projects i saw <laughs> i'm saying i have lots of crazy ideas sometimes i start projects um, it's lovely to speak about the successes but <laughs> yeah, my, my study is littered with things that didn't quite you know pull off I, I, um, I gave um, Blue Peter a, a, a satellite and there was a satellite launch and we sort of named it Blue Peter One and we were going to do all sorts of environmental projects around it but somehow it sort of died a death. It's like, yeah, great idea but you know, it doesn't quite fulfil. But uh, to me the key is to be successful you don't not fail but the key is to pick yourself up when you do fail and think okay that was horrible, that didn't work, where to next? <laughs> Actually also um, the death of my father was quite... Um, debilitating um, we were very very close and so when he died it felt as if the world was coming to an end but what i wanted to do was make his memory live on so that's why um my armadarian poke because i want to keep his surname in everything i do so he he he, he sings out there that's uh, that, that's beautifully honest of you and that's <laughs> uh, no less than what i would expect from someone like you to be honest with you um you know your dad was he was nigerian do you know whereabouts he, he was from in nigeria Oh, yes. Um, so uh, he's from um, Iliife. It's um, uh, part of the Yoruba um, um, sort of a tribe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I, I see the Yoruba tribe there. Many tribes in, in, in the area that is, is Nigeria. Um, yes. I've been there. I, I found it fascinating. People very, very generous, very, very, very warm, very, very I think quite fun gregarious. people to be. Gregarious is a very good term. 
Um, are you, have you, you've been, haven't you? But only once. Uh, and um, that was probably about two years ago. Uh, when I always wanted my dad to take me so he could show me the Nigeria, because he spoke about it as a child, uh, spoke to me as a child when it, and told me about Nigeria. And it just seemed like a, a magical place. And I wanted him to, because also you hear a lot about Nigeria, which isn't good, uh, like, you know, corruption and things like that. And uh, because it's sort of, you know, the birthplace of my ancestors, I wanted to go and enjoy it. So I wanted him to take me. Uh, although I'm, I'm still planning a trip, hopefully, with my mum. And what I really want to do is I want to take my daughter so she can see her heritage. Um, so, um, uh, and so I've been once and uh, I, I was quite, uh, I, I was quite nervous about going, but it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Well, why were you nervous? Uh, well, actually, I think my biggest fear was I might not like it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. There's always that. Um, yeah. we, we can't look at the present times and not look at, at what's going on around the world yeah. um, as a consequence of what happened to George Jordan. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I've been to Black Lives Matter demonstrations in, um, in the US and I've looked at, um, you know, the deaths of, of, of particularly young black men at the hands of police across the United States for a number of years. There's a couple of things I want to say to you, um, and this is true. This is when I made a film in Memphis. Um, I just looked back at it, and it's not about me. It's, it's completely about uh, young black men, actually. And the comparison between a young black man and a young white man, you're, you're likely to die before a white person by some way. Yeah. You're six times more likely to go to prison, and you're ten times more likely to be shot. And they're more... African-Americans in prison today than there has ever been. Does that surprise you? What does that make you think? It makes me very depressed. Um, it's funny, I, I was mentioning sort of having slight fears about going to Nigeria. Um, when my first trip to America, I was very nervous because segregation didn't end in some places that long ago. Do you think that things will change now? Or do you think this is just another marker and it will take many, many years for... Yeah. For people to change their outlook and that racism is is hardwired not just into people in the united states of america but across the world including this country well it, it's interesting because if we look at this country when my father came in the 1950s you know there were signs you know, uh, i think no dogs uh, no no blacks no irish or, or whatever combination it was and of course that that's illegal now it's quite interesting because the fact that it's illegal sometimes it makes it go sort of underground so you're not aware of it but it might still be there but at the same time uh, when i was at school i i got sort of teased like kids tease each other about anything you know ginger hair black skin whatever so i got a lot of teasing but i see my daughter in school now and it, it's changed and, and so i think it is a sort of a generational thing but i, I think in some cases kids are taught to hate um, we see in, we saw in, in sort of um, Ireland, we've seen in, in Northern Ireland, we've seen it in various places, they're different from us and therefore we should hate them. And if kids are growing up with them, then it doesn't go away. And so it's trying to find ways of debunking that. Also, I think it's the biggest problem is sort of fear of the unknown. You know, they're not like us. Uh, we, we're like this and they're like that. And so they're wrong and we're right and we don't want to mix with them. And while those divides still hold, then the racism, the segregation, the, the, the dichotomy between you know, those who have and those who haven't persists. And so uh, it's trying to find ways of breaking down those barriers and, and also sort of uh, exposing people to, um, to different cultures. That you know, this, your culture is not the only culture. 
what I think is people should travel as much as possible. Okay, under the current circumstances, that's, yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. But yeah, I mean, through your experiences, you've just met so many different people and seen so many different cultures, different ways of doing it. Some great, some terrifying. I do think, but I do think that the, the, the racism isn't something that's going to sadly go away overnight. Um, do you, I have to ask you, Maggie, you know, you've encountered racism. This is a sort of, a, a, I was fairly young, so I'd come out of university, maybe two or three years. Yeah, a, a contractor, I was uh, uh, um, going to their site for a meeting. I got to the gate, uh, I was wearing my briefcase and my uh, sort of, uh, not my suit, I'm feeling quite, quite young, <laughs> quite important. And um, uh, the, the guy um, looked up at me, saw me there and said, look, here are the keys, love. You need to start cleaning the offices at the back, then work your way to the front. Because the briefcase, the suit... Didn't see those, did he? He just saw a black um, face, right? That's it. And a, a black woman cleaner. That's his equation. And that's what stuck in his mind. How did it make you feel when that guy turned around to you and said, and there's nothing wrong with being a cleaner. I've been a cleaner. Right? Yeah, me too. I used to clean, I used to clean toilets in pubs in the 80s. <laughs> yes. It was amazing some of the things that you found. Stuck, tucked Ooh. away. <laughs> yeah, some of the things I don't want to talk about. <laughs> um, but, but the point being... Um, what did it make you feel? Did you? What did you say to him? How did you react? Because and that's that's the challenge, isn't it? Because it, it, at first you think, what? The assumption is what is the pain? Because as you say, I, I've worked as a cleaner. There's nothing wrong with being a cleaner, but it's the assumption. She's a black woman, therefore she's the cleaner. And so part of you, you know, your blood rises, you know, <laughs> the colour comes to your cheek, and you, you want to <laughs> But to me, that doesn't solve the problem. Because the problem is, he has an equation in his head, and it's black woman cleaner. And so what I want to do is change that equation, show that you know, black woman may be something else. It, it could go into different ways. And so I, 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 I sort of you know, calm myself down and say, oh, oh, um, I, I think you're mistaken. I, I'm actually here uh, to see Steve because I'm doing an assessment of his work. And uh, so I'm not here to clean. And uh, if you could call Steve, I, I'm sure he'll come and collect me. And the reaction to that was? Oh, oh. Actually, well, there was a bit of embarrassment from his part um, because it's sort of, you know, he made an assumption and it was an incorrect assumption. So it was, oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, no problem, I'll, I'll call Steve now. And so he went and called Steve. But um, it was the, uh, but it was better than me sort of, how dare you, you banging the table? Because then I'm just like, well, mad black woman. <laughs> yeah, so, but, but that can't be the only time. I mean, and, and it's not just about being black, it's also about being a woman in the area and the field that you you're an expert in, it is predominantly male, is it not? And it is it predominantly is. white, isn't it? It is, yes. And so, well, see, but uh, it's quite interesting because I, I speak to other women working in science and sort of engineering and things like that, but yet yeah, the numbers are pretty grim. Um, I think only 20% of uh, uh, engineers in the UK are female. Uh, so it's slightly better for sort of people working in sort of the physical sciences, it's about 30%. And in computing, yeah, it's about sort of, yeah, 17%. So yes, it is pretty grim. But um, to me, I speak to other women sort of in a similar situation, sort of, you know, a female, a females, sort of, uh, maybe from ethnic minorities. And I'm saying, I think we should try and use it to our advantage. Because if I'm in a meeting and I say something, people are probably going to remember what I say, because I'm probably the only woman there and I'm probably the only black person there. So um, I, I think it, it's sort of trying to, uh, I won't say work the system, but uh, I know if I say something dumb, they'll also remember it. <laughs> so... Well, it's quite interesting because um, uh, in many of the projects uh, and sort of some of the large space projects, I'm a project manager. So I'm managing a team. <laughs> OK, so you're going to have to validate yourself to the people that are um, when you're captain of the team, you don't have to ask the left back. Uh, 
if he's happy with the captaincy. Well, to a certain extent, yes, especially when you first come into a team, because they're sort of looking at this, hello, this isn't our usual project manager, you know, she's female and she's black. This is an interesting combination. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so, um, so I think there is a, a certain time period where you've got to show, you know, I know my stuff, I know what I'm doing, uh, I, I'm in control. Uh, but also, uh, my sort of way of management is to sh- hands-on. Um, if you know, a dustbin needs emptying, I'll go and do it. So it's making everything, doing everything in my power to make sure the project works. And so that some of it is knowledge and sort of you know, experience and things like that. But some of it is, okay, you're too busy to empty this bin. You get on with your work, I'll, I'll do this. So it's sort of trying to, to, trying to smooth things along. But I think there is always that moment of sort of, oh, oh, she's not what we were expecting. But I, I like to think that science can transcend that. And, and there were some wonderful examples of this, where like at CERN, people from all over the world, uh, people from uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, um, parts of Israel and parts of um, uh, uh, um, Palestine who wouldn't speak to each other if they met in the street, but they're working together on a large project and so they collaborate. Science can, it doesn't always, but it can bring people together. So um, uh, yes, and uh, I've, 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 uh, I've, I won't say relied on that, but that has helped, I think, in some of these situations. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You think this generation is amazing? I do. Tell me why. I mean, I actually think they're pretty cool as well, I have to say. So tell me why. Yeah, I think they're more connected. And I think by being connected, they think that can be a good thing and a bad thing. Because it can be connected and sort of just watch you know, the Cardassians or whatever and just sort of, you know, get into a, a spiral that way. But they can be connected and they believe they can change the world. And to me, belief and implementation, um, if, you, if you believe something can happen, it's much more likely to happen. 
and uh, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, the thing is, um, I was born in the sort of the late sixties, and I think that was another time where people thought, yeah, we're going to change the world. We're going to do something. Whether people agree or disagree, and I'm not going to call you on this, but you know, with people demonstrating um, yes. over the last weekend, um, you know. I believe that what black life stands for is an end to violence, particularly against young black men, but also about creating a better understanding of what it is to be black and also yes. removing racism from our society over what, however long it takes. Yes. Um, and when those people demonstrated, um, the only thing that upset me was that it turned to violence at the end. And also demonstration is a powerful tool. Um, we the status quo is this and we're not happy with it so we're gathering we're at a safe distance together to say something about it to show that there are lots of us that aren't happy about it i think it's the same with sort of with climate change and people sort of sort of standing up against that there we have limited power as individuals but when we come together we we are forced to be reckoned with and it's no matter what the the challenge is but i think it but also that we're not happy there is a situation that is not sustainable and it needs to change. So I, th I think um, sort of non-violent protest is a powerful tool. And I think it, is a, an, a, it can be a very effective tool, but it is just so sad when it gets corrupted because then the message gets lost. Um, I remember as a child when people um, they'd show pictures on TV and it's sort of, you know, uh, you know, this criminal activity took place and then they'd show a picture and I'll be thinking, oh, please don't let them be black, don't let them be black. So it's sort of, a, it's that sort of a feeling. And so when these um, um, sort of a, a demonstrations, that they're twisted into something violent, I think it does us all harm, no matter what colour, race, gender, whatever. It does us all harm. Agreed. Um, climate change, um, another kind of campaigning issue for you yes. yes are we are we still destroying the planet at an amazing rate or are we learning anything it'd be nice to think we're learning but the problem with climate change is we need to act now and that's what that's why one of the reasons i think the youth are so powerful because they this is their future and they want to stop us from messing it up and um uh, but so i think we're doing little things but i think we need to work more concertedly more together that's one of the problems one of the things i love about space is you just see planet earth you don't even see the humans you just see planet earth and uh, but down here on the surface it's sort of uh, well i um uh, the americans can't work with the russians or they can't work this so and so we're divided and until we unite we're not really going to solve the problem or get to the base of the problem do you think that you know big industry oil for instance or big industry oil and countries that make vast profits from those industries are completely opposed to the idea of, of climate change? I think, I think it's a good comparison with slavery. Um, people had slaves, they were doing lots for them. And so when people came up and said, oh, we should, uh, uh, this is, you know, this is anathema, we've got to abolish this. There was a reticence. And I think we're going through something similar with climate change. People th think, um, well, you know, this is how we earn our living. And I think they are evolving, but I think it's too slow. Unfortunately, I think given enough time, they'll sort of you know, go on to under, other industries, they'll be you know, greener, whatever. But we need to do it quickly. And that is where the challenge lies. So given 100 years, yeah, I think would be fine. But we haven't got 100 years. We need to act sooner. So I think, yeah, so I don't know if the, I think it is, um, when you've got a super tanker, it takes a while to turn it. 
And I think that's where the big companies come in. Yeah, but we do oil. What else can we do? And they are thinking outside the box and they're trying to change. But the super tanker is still heading in the wrong direction. Is it education? Is it education? Or is it change? See, for that, I don't think it's education. People know the damage they cause. But it's it's a mindset. It's sort of a profit. It's sort of the shareholders. It's, there's always an excuse for doing what we're doing. And that's why when we talk about sort of space and space becoming commercialized, commercial is driven by other things. And so I, I sort of welcome it, but I fear it at the same time because it's sort of, yeah, how much ethics, you can have commercial, um, uh, ethic, ethical commercial, but sometimes the ethics get pushed to one side and you get focused on something else. And I think it's just too easy for that to happen. Uh, but in terms of, I think it's in terms of, I think we need better policing. What I want is a sort of a global overseer. <laughs> it's like a dictator. Oh, well, it sounds like Star Trek to me. <laughs> well, something like the United Nations, but with, you know. Yeah, with teeth. Like an, yeah, quite. They're, they're able to do something. Because um, otherwise, you know, this country sort of argues with this country. So this sort of, a, a, a few years ago, I went out to Syria before the troubles started. And I was, um, I went with the United Nations and I spoke to, hundreds of kids I was carrying my daughter at the time so it's about 10 years ago and I wonder what has happened to those kids now with the pandemic what is happening there we're not getting a lot of news out of certain areas of the world at the moment well I'm not seeing it and there are places that I've been to as well and it does worry me as well can space teach us something about where we're heading and if we don't do something about it I mean we all know we're we're not heading in the right direction at the moment is there, are there things out there that can teach us? Because as we discussed earlier, you know, um, um, our sun is one of 300 billion in our galaxy. Mm. And you know, we, we've, gone, we've just, um, Voyager, this Voyager spacecraft, have just gone beyond our solar system. So yeah, we're sort of, you know, <laughs> but the thing is, but we have learned things from space. Um, for instance, um, um, the astronauts going out into space and looking back at planet Earth, people think that inspired sort of like things like the Gaia movement, seeing the planet as a sort of a living sort of organism, which we need to look after and nurture. So I think sometimes sort of stepping back and looking back, you think, oh my goodness, you know, it's a, the pale blue dot, as Carl Sagan said, yeah, this tiny a drop of, of, of sort of life-giving sustenance in an ocean of darkness. <laughs> and there, yeah, there, there is this, this tiny drop of life-giving sustenance that we are trying to, th- you know, we're trying to destroy. <laughs> Yes, and so I think we need to learn from that. But another interesting thing about space is now we're looking, we have, we've made a bit of a mess of planet Earth and we're looking you know, with a mask and other people about going to Mars and maybe terraforming Mars, making Mars more Earth-like. That, sorry, hang on, on that, on that subject, isn't that where you want to retire? <laughs> yes, um, so yeah, Mars is my retirement <laughs> well, plan. Sorry, what happened to, you know, a nice cottage on the coast somewhere? <laughs> well, see, um, um, well, as a child, I used to watch Star Trek and you know, they travelled out there everywhere. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. But then I realised the reality of sort of space travel is we haven't got very far at all. And if you look as at you were the, saying. Yeah. yeah you... If you look at the planets of our solar system, Mercury is sort of about the size of the moon, sits right next to the sun. You can't go there. It's sort of there. Well, total white of Venus has a nice thick atmosphere. But average temperature on Venus is about 420 degrees. Is Pluto a planet? Is Pluto now a planet or is it a, is, is that a planet, is it? <laughs> No, well, Pluto is smaller than our moon. And the problem is, if Pluto is a planet, then um, all the other planets we find of that sort of size, the kids will be at school, you know, having sort of huge... No, sort of, it's not a planet. How dare it? How, you know oh, what? No, no, size does before, matter. Pluto. And Pluto, you're out. You're out. <laughs> but he's got lots of friends, um, fellow dwarf planets that are similar size. <laughs> 
it's been fascinating talking to you. I mean, what does the future look like? I mean, in terms of our knowledge of space and what we can Ooh. learn and what we can do to better understand it. So I think we're going in the right direction. In terms of, I, I, I think, looking at the pandemic and things like that, and uh, Stephen Hawking said the same, it's dangerous to have all humans living on one planet. So a colony on the moon, a colony on Mars, ethically done, I think is a good idea. So that we, it will spread the seeds of humanity out there. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's sort of coming along. But at the same time, we are looking even further afield. One of my frustrations, almost with Star Trek, was that um, everything is so far away. Um, our next door neighbour star, Proxima Centauri, four and a quarter light years away, 40 trillion kilometres. It would take 76,000 years to get there with current technology. <laughs> so Star Trek promised so much. Yeah, but moment, it did, didn't it? But at the moment, there are plans to come up with a new way of travelling through space. It's called a solar sail. And we've used it sort of locally in our, our solar system. But it might be a way of travelling to the stars. But with this technology, what you can do is you can have, it's like a sheet of metallized plastic in space. And what you do is you send um, light up into that sheet. So um, the light comes in packets called photons and they hit this uh, metal sheet and they accelerate it to a fifth of the speed of light. And if we can do that, it means we can go from our star to Proxima Centauri, not in 76,000 years, but we could do that journey in 20 years. So, um, and so my so crazy that, idea that is, is... That is a possibility. A it is, possibility. This is a project that people are working on as we speak. Now, the problem is, um, this solar sail, um, when you send something out into space, the, um, the sort of uh, the um, electronics you can send can weigh no more than one gram, you know, no more than that one cubic centimetre of water. Right. <laughs> so it all like, comes back to that one cubic centimetre of water. Well, it may do. <laughs> the whole <Who> universe. <laughs> you talk about the colonisation of other planets and not making those mistakes. Is it possible? And when would it be possible? It's, it's always dangerous making these sort of predictions. And I'm sure people look back and sort of laugh at anything I say. But the, looking at the solar system, the place we're most likely to go is Mars, because uh, Mars is about as cold as Antarctica, so it's survivable. Um, so, um, and we have the technology to go to Mars at the moment. What's stopping us is really the will and the funding. So in a way, commercialization could be our way into creating a future for humankind. I think so. I think it, it very much is. Because if you're just relying on governments, um, you get pandemics which really slow everything down. It's not, it's not the focus. Whereas there are some companies where it, it is very much part of their focus. They're almost funding it for other sources, but it's their focus. But um, yes, I think it's the ethics that really scare me. But going, going just like beyond that for the time being just the the physical nature of how you go about doing it what you fly yes. a rocket out there it lands and it builds a station on the ground and it it has an atmosphere in it that is is breathable yes. and sustainable for human life is that how it works yeah so um, for instance, um foster and partners um they built the gherkin uh, they were working with the european space agency over the last few years looking at how you build a, a moon colony and what they had is sort of a little capsule that you launch into space and it sort of lands on the moon's surface, totally unmanned. And then out of this capsule uh, comes an inflatable dome. Now, an inflatable dome on the moon's surface, because there's no atmosphere, you couldn't live in that because you'd be you know, pummeled by radiation, meteors, all sorts of and the horrible temperature range. So what they do, they do is you have some little robots and some 3D printing robots which will come out of the other end of the capsule and they start scooping up the lunar soil, the lunar regolith, and 3D printing it um, into a sort of a capsule around this inflatable habitat. 
So then by the time humans arrive, um, you've already got a habitat. Um, you, you, you can fill it up with sort of, a, you, we're planting water on the moon, which is surprising, but also very good because with water, you get oxygen, you get hydrogen. Hydrogen is rocket fuel, oxygen we breathe. So we have sort of resources on the moon where you could actually start growing things. You could do the same on Mars, set up um, sort of the infrastructure before any humans arrive there. And I don't know if it'll be like the Martian or we're growing potatoes in poo, but you could add things to the soil so you could actually start you know, growing things on Mars. And there are lots of different organisations that have plans to do this. But the problem is it is going to cost billions. And so it is getting that sort of uh, that capital together to make it happen. No, I, I want to talk about one thing, something really serious before we, we say goodbye to each other. And I've made a few of these um, oh, yeah. over my life. They're called clangers. <gasps> oh. <laughs> now, I believe, not that I was really jealous to begin with in terms of the knowledge that you have, but oh, I am uh, oh, look, uber jealous now. You'd be <laughs> the, now, did they actually, Maggie, make a clanger of you or they represented you and had it in like a centenary edition? They made a programme where I visit the clangers and it's, it's All right, the cut the interview. <laughs> cut. Actually, this is my major claim to life. <laughs> I always wanted to be a soup dragon anyway. I don't want to be a clanger. A soup dragon and baby soup dragon. I met, I've met them all now. But how big are they in real life? Oh, so um, actually, uh, so slightly bigger than this. So this is sort of probably about this size. Oh uh, yeah, because they have to be quite big. Can you imagine they're going to be a bit smaller than that, don't you, when you watch it? Yes. But because they they need to sort of move the limbs. Yeah, yeah, and then oh. and then bring it all together. So you actually were in an episode of the Clangers. Because we went to visit them. Because um, I've always said that I, I became a space <laughs> Wait a It sounds like you got a rocket. Yeah, took off from Guildford area. Um, <laughs> but yes, so there's, there's this episode called The Visitor and it's sort of celebrating the, uh, the Clangers 50th anniversary. And they made a little Maggie model. And she was saying she had plaits and everything and a little visor. And um, uh, and I get to and they leave me presents on the surface, and then I sort of the major planning has um, a, a bit makes a bit of a mistake, and but I get to shake hands, and when that happened, I cried because my three year old self, this was my dream coming true. <laughs> um, so what have you got coming up? Tell me what's what's next for you in terms of work, apart from obviously Sky at Night, that's ongoing, right? Yes, and, and it's quite pretty. interesting because we've been filming Sky at Night at home. So, so you know, filming in the back garden and things like that, and you're sort of doing interviews uh, like this with, with Zoom. So that's been really interesting. Uh, but yeah, I've got uh, another uh, TV show coming up um, for kids. So it's on a CBBC, and it's called um, uh, uh, Out of This World, and it's sort of um, uh, um, it's sort of talking about sort of doing sort of crazy experiments at home, and yeah, what is uh, what has space given us really? You know, like you know, um, uh, solar uh, solar panels and uh, autonomous cars and things like that. And it's investigating these different strands and some of the amazing people um, that have gone out into space as well. I'm watching. That's that's too good for children, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I watch God, a lot of shows. <laughs> same here. Well, we've proven that to, today, haven't we? <laughs> We're Clangers fans. I know. Go <laughs> talk to me so so you've got that that sounds fascinating yes. on cbbc yeah and um and my daughter and i because we were in lockdown we decided that we'd try and make our, our own programs so we set up a youtube channel so the youtube channel is called uh, beyond the earth and it's me and my daughter doing crazy experiments and making crazy films about space 
and it's been really good fun because um, uh, we just do experiments together and so we're trying to cover some of the sort of science curriculum and sort of make it sort of fun and crazy so we just did a 24 hours solar challenge where we lived on solar energy for 24 hours and slept in a tent in the garden but it's just trying to do crazy things uh, but try and because science is powerful and science can change our lives I wrote a book recently um, and it's about one of my true loves, the moon. Um, it's called um, The Sky at Night Book of the Moon, A Guide to Our Closest Neighbour. Because I am a total lunatic. Um, whenever I see the moon, I'm totally mesmerised. And also writing a book about the moon was a bit of a lunatic, a lunatic thing to do for a dyslexic. Um, but because it was the moon, uh, it was a celebration. And so we looked at how people sort of you know, love the moon in the past and how the moon is sort of helping us today just have life on Earth and how in the future we might have colonies on the moon. So it's sort of a, a complete sort of a it's, a, it's a love song to the moon, really. Yeah, I mean, look, 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 you talk about, we talk about the final frontier, yeah, in, uh, in Star Trek. What is the final, what is the, is there a final frontier or is, our, is or, or, or are our frontiers ever expanding and we will never get to our final frontier? I think you've put it beautifully in a nutshell. The universe is expanding. We're, we're, no matter how fast we travel out there, I think it will just continue expanding before us. But at the same time, we can look at sort of, you know, the sort of things they're doing at the Large Hadron Collider and look at the tiniest particles, you know, conceivable and see what's going on at that level as well. And maybe that will open up different dimensions to multiverses and all sorts of things. And, and you said you love biology. Understanding the human mind and how the brain works. For A-Livers, I did physics, chemistry, biology and maths because I couldn't give up the biology because it's so fascinating. So on every front, there is amazing things to discover. And uh, I'm just an incredibly inquisitive person. And uh, my dream, well, when I die, my idea of heaven is that, not that I meet sort of a guy with a beard and things like that, because I don't believe in any of that, but that um, I get all the answers that are to the questions I've ever asked. You know, sort of, you know, I'm presenting, I join the universal mind and I get all the answers to all the questions I've ever asked and some I didn't even think of. So just sort of to unite with the universe and understand what's out there. That's my idea of heaven. <laughs> I love that. That's a great way to finish, Maggie. <laughs> Can I just thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for talk, taking the time out to talk to me right now. It is has been fascinating, joyous and insightful. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Roskamp TV. This has been a fresh water and the chance of collective production. Thanks to the team and one fine play. And until the next episode, goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 